Hello and welcome to this special summer edition of Inside Briefing. My name is Tim Durrant, Associate Director of our Ministers Programme, and today we are talking about what Prime Ministers do once they leave office. Boris Johnson is the first Prime Minister in 25 years to have five of his predecessors still alive. But Major, Blair, Brown, Cameron and May all provide us with quite different models for the afterlife of former PMs. From developing global think tanks, advising a failed fintech company, or carrying on as a constituency MP, they're all taking their own approach. That doesn't mean, however, that they're not prepared to get involved in national politics, and as we've seen recently, challenge Johnson when they think he's got it wrong. So what do we want our former Prime Ministers to be doing? Unlike former US Presidents, PMs don't get a library, but they do still have a platform. We're going to discuss today how important they are in public life and how much influence they have on politics. And are we likely to see comebacks? Harold Wilson was the last PM to have two stints in number 10. Would we ever see that again? Or do they only get one shot nowadays? To discuss all this and more, we've got a brilliant group here today. I'm joined by Catherine Haddon, Senior Fellow at the IFG and Historian of Whitehall. Hi, Kath. Hi, Tim. David Gork, former Justice and Work and Pension Secretary and MP for South West Hertfordshire joins us as well. Welcome, David. Hi, Tim. Francis Elliott, Director of Advocacy at Engage Britain and former political editor of The Times, as well as co-author of a biography of David Cameron, is here. Great to have you with us, Francis. Hello, Tim. And Esther Weber, Senior UK Correspondent at Politico. It's great to have you here as well, Esther. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Tim. David, can we start by talking to you about um, what it's like in government? How much of an opportunity is there for XPMs and ministers to plan for for life after after they're in the thick of it? I suspect not very much. Um, you are so busy as a as a minister, let alone as a prime minister, you don't have much of an opportunity uh, to plan. Also, the end of your prime ministerial period usually, not not always, but usually can come quite suddenly and unexpectedly. Yeah, I'm sure that. David Cameron didn't expect to be resigning as um, as Prime Minister in early 2016. When he called the referendum, he thought he'd see it through. Um, you know, Theresa May was hoping to stay on until she she did. You can have a period, I suppose, where there's the election campaign going on, but you know, there's not very much time there. So I suspect it's quite hard to think about what you are going to do. And, and I think the David Cameron case is an interesting one, where he initially set off to continue to be a constituency MP, but by the time he got to the autumn, had reached the conclusion that that wasn't that wasn't going to work. It wasn't for him, uh, and and resigned his seat. So I think it's quite I think it's quite difficult to be honest for a prime minister to work out what they are going to do next. It's hard enough to do the job that they're currently in, uh, rather than think about what what the future might lie. And on that point about you know their ongoing relationship with Parliament, Francis, were you surprised that Cameron said he was going to stay in the Commons, or were you surprised that he then left quite quickly afterwards? I didn't think he'd stay. I don't think he actually ever really made any backbench interventions at all, did he? Maybe one. I think there was one on the need to stay close to the single market. But, I mean, looking back, I, th- I think he probably could be excused from leaving because it was in the beginnings of the of the working out, well, what do we really mean by Brexit? And his was such a kind of broken voice at that time that I, I think he was probably right to go. I don't think, in general, I think former PMs have gone too quickly. In his case, I, I, I can see why he left. Yeah. So as you say, I mean, it's not always the case that they leave immediately. 
Blair, Blair did, but Gordon Brown stayed in Parliament uh, until the 2015 election. He was mainly talking, when he did intervene, he mainly spoke on, on international development issues and uh, questions around Scotland. May, of course, as we know, has stayed on his backbencher. Um, Esther, do you think May has a sort of a particular role and a voice in the Commons as a former PM? And do you think, how, do, how does she use that? When it became clear that she was going to stay on, um, you could sort of see almost immediately how it would work. In she would sort of revert to being a very kind of traditional conservative backbencher in some ways. I I think possibly her first post prime ministerial contribution was about um, traffic control and planning in <laughs> in Maidenhead. So that um, kind of set the tone. But then from that kind of quite um, provincial focus, which also Gordon Brown had had, because I remember when I was a parliamentary reporter, he was always holding a German debate on pollution in Dalgetty Bay. But yes, so she started off on a kind of local tack and then kind of gradually chose her moments to kind of intervene on uh, big issues of national and international importance. And I think what's quite interesting, and maybe we'll go more into this, is that in some ways the former, the living former PMs are all quite closely aligned on certain issues. And in a, and she sort of acts as their representative in in the House of Commons. Yeah, that is that is interesting. And yeah, let's talk about sort of yeah their influence on kind of political debate a little bit later. On on Parliament, so the last PM to go to the House of Lords was Margaret Thatcher. Why do you think um, PMs don't go to the Lords anymore. Does that tell us something about the Lords and how that's changed? Or does it tell us something about the particular group of XPMs that we have at the moment? John Major was sort of reluctant to to take up a peerage, I think. And that kind of set the new model of doing things this way. And I think it's because the House of Lords doesn't have a brilliant reputation among the wider public, sort of seen as, you know, so, uh, kind of very posh retirement home that people can collect some money for. And I, I think probably this bunch of relatively young former prime ministers um, I think they have uh, more of a contribution to make outside and that they don't necessarily need to be inside the the legislature to make those changes and they don't quite fancy kind of slipping into obscurity either. So, and the Lords, of course, would be a good place to do that. <laughs> Well, at that point about them being, you know, perhaps younger than than predecessors is interesting. So we've seen, haven't we, that, you know, that there is uh, an appetite amongst XPMs to sort of return or, or make a career outside politics, outside public life. Um, obviously, recently, we've we've seen um, David Cameron's work with Greensill, which was shone a light on, on this idea of PMs turning to the private sector and using their kind of, you know, their experience in government, um, uh, perhaps 
more or less successfully um, uh, for different XPMs. But also we, we heard news recently that Theresa May has just signed up to work with the Aldersgate group, a, a sort of business group on net zero issues. So, Kath, do you think um, the need for prime ministers to have jobs after politics is partly due to the fact that they are younger than they used to be? I think it is. I mean, if you look back at you know, the, Esther talking about them going to the Lords as a retirement home, actually, if you look back at the 17th and 18th century, a lot of them had stately homes in the country that they could return to. So the difference is, I mean, actually, if you go back to the 18th century, there were a lot of prime ministers in their 40s, 30s, and even obviously a 24-year-old. But their lifespan, the, you know, their time after office was much shorter. People weren't living as, as long as they do today. In the last century, you were far more likely to see prime ministers in their 60s, you know, leaving office in their late 60s and therefore going into retirement and and obviously prime ministers in their 80s. So I think it's that it's it's that age at retirement and and also the amount of, of working or influential life that you could have left that is making the big difference at the moment. But there's also a question, I think, about how much of a wrench it is leaving leaving office. David, I was interested in what you were saying about, you know, uh, they don't get any time to plan and so forth. I do know, I think May, she did consult some of the former prime ministers about what she should do before she stayed on. Margaret Thatcher also was sort of umming and ahhing about staying on in the Commons and, and indeed whether or not she could she could herself make a comeback. And that was one of her reasons for wanting to stay on for a bit longer. But we haven't really talked about the emotional wrench that it is. You go from having this staff, you know, number 10, having the cars, having all the attention, being a leader on the on the world stage. I mean, David, what do you think it's like for them leaving at that point? And is that part of the reason why they're looking for perhaps glory in other form, well, walks of life? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And you know, when you consider it's a completely absorbing job, um, it you know, fills all your hours it's fascinating. I mean, just going through the red boxes must be absolutely fascinating in terms of seeing everything that's going on in government. I, I, I got a, a sort of small element of this as Chief Secretary to the Treasury, which is one of the best places to see what's going on across government. And it is extraordinarily interesting. Um, in addition, as, as Prime Minister, you've got, of course got all the intelligence briefings and, and so on. So you've got a fair idea of what's going on around the rest of the world as well. Uh, you've got the status, you've got the kind of international connections. So, you know, all the leaders meetings, the G7s, the G20s, uh, back in the day, of course, the, the European Union meetings, where you've got to meet other heads of government. Uh, and, and that's all sort of terribly exciting. And, and above all, you know, you, you can make a difference. You are at the heart of things, and you can change things. And that is a tremendous privilege. Uh, I mean, as I say, as any, any minister has got a small part of that, but for a prime minister, it must be all the greater. So for that to come to an end must be quite a wrench. And I was also quite struck that, you know, obviously the last 16, 17 months or so where we've had the COVID crisis, and I can remember people coming up to, to me in sort of March, April 2020 saying, God, you must be glad you're out of it. And I know that the response of, of, I think, lots of ex-ministers was, no, this is precisely the time where I really miss being in government. It's the point where I really, really wanted to be 
you know, back there because you wanted to make a difference. This was the point where you could contribute. And I, I do wonder whether, you know, particularly someone like Tony Blair, who has been very prominent to a much greater extent over the last 18 months or so, you know, during this crisis, is looking from the outside and just sort of, I, I want to make a contribution. And indeed, he has made a contribution. And, and although this is, this is an unpopular thing to say, and I know everyone assumes that David Cameron and his intervention on Greensill, it was all about you know, his own personal finances. But I think there was also an element there where you know, the, the country was, was in a crisis and he wanted to play a role and he genuinely thought that Greensill had something to offer and, and to could contribute. And he, want, you know, he wanted to be there. He wanted, you know, he wanted to make a difference. He wanted to be at the heart of things. That strong sense... Uh, amongst uh, ex-prime ministers, I suspect is almost overwhelming. Uh, and, and, and it's why I, I suspect all of the ex-prime ministers have missed the role more recently than, than they had in other times. Mm. And also because there's such big questions going on. I mean, it's not just COVID, but, you know, the fate of the union, Brexit, these are all the, th- and Northern Ireland, these are all the things that they've all been contributing towards on, you know, saying stuff on far more so than I can remember sort of, you know, 10 years ago or something, they've all been much more outspoken because they're such big issues, I guess. And, and Francis, do you think, you know, an XPM intervention has has weight in in, in political debate now? So, you know, um, Gordon Brown often, as Kath said, sort of, you know, makes makes a big speech on the union. John Major obviously cares very, and, and Tony Blair obviously care very much about the, the situation in Northern Ireland. You know, do, do their, their words kind of carry weight in among modern politicians? It's a mixed bag, isn't it? I mean, the, the interventions in the Brexit referendum were were not effective. Uh, you had all, you know, you had, you had, Blair and Major and Brown making concerted arguments on the Remain side, which only kind of served to underline, you know, uh, the uh, elite attack against that mm-hmm. side of the argument. Brown probably did make a, a, a significant intervention in the in the 2014 Indy Ref because he could reach a particular segment that was in play, really, rather than um, because he was. I mean, he was specific to him and to his appeal and to, 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 the, to the dynamics of that referendum, so all quite contingent. And as Esther says, you know, May is as likely to get up and talk about roundabouts in Maidenhead as she is in, in, on, on foreign aid. And, and um, uh, I don't, she didn't win that foreign aid argument. So, but, but just to go back to what Kath was saying about Blair and, and COVID, I mean, Blair did have a good COVID. And I think, I think that's where former PMs really do have something, only they will really know where the levers of power are in, in what, what works and what crucially doesn't. And I think, I think there, is, there is merit in seeking to, to capture as much of that as possible. I think there's a, there, is a, there is a potential game where they get some status and, um, and regard by the state in return for passing on the kind of brains trust of how to do that. I mean, you know, I don't know the IFG should do some proper exit interviews uh, and download <laughs> them all. Well, if any of them want to talk to us, they're very welcome. If we were, <laughs> if we were starting again, you know, the Privy Council might might look a bit like that, right? I mean, instead of the ridiculous thing that it is these days, because they really see the properly properly secret stuff, right? You know, yeah. uh, and and that is extraordinary. And yeah, I mean, David makes a very good point. I mean, at the moment of, of, of maximum crisis is the moment they'll miss it the most. And, and often thinking, oh, don't do that. That's a disaster. I tried that. It was a total failure. You know, and that, it happens informally, but 
maybe there's a way of making it a bit more formal. And is it fair, I mean, is it fair to say that, you know, as an XPM, you can be above kind of the politics? So, you know, uh, I, I don't know, Theresa May obviously was bedeviled by trying to get her Brexit deal through. But now that she's not Prime Minister, she is able to be a bit more sort of open about, I think, what she thinks, you know, the the relationship between the UK and the EU should be, rather than having to worry about what, if she's got enough votes for, for whichever meaningful vote is happening this week. So uh, it does does sort of you know that kind of elder states person role does that allow them to get above the kind of political fray whether they're still in the commons or not yeah to an extent i mean that's definitely the role they've sought to inhabit i think but i think the problem is that as francis said what one of the most effective kind of avenues they can go down that way is advising on these matters of absolute national crisis and urgency because they're part of this very small club who've been there and actually seen how it works. I think part of the problem they encounter are other issues, the kind of constitutional questions and aid, is that people know what they think and, and their kind of reactions are priced in. So if you support the cut in foreign aid, then you're probably not much bothered what they think. And if you voted Remain and you still kind of regret the decision, then you find their presence and their voices very reassuring. But I, I don't think they currently have a huge amount of ability to change people's mind they're a bit kind of set in their ways now but um with Blair the thing that's fascinated me is obviously he's he's developed this global um institute the Tony Blair Global Institute which at, at first was that it was global it was you know doing lots of activities but actually in COVID it it seems to have morphed into a kind of almost number 10 policy unit for him so <laughs> one of the reasons why he's been able to do the interventions he's done is he's got a staff of people doing research developing evidence for him to be able to talk about this so it's not just about his own instincts and you know, recollection of office and, and thinking about what to do, but it's also because he's he's got that resource to be able to to comment on it. And I mean, that is a bit of a different model. All prime ministers will look for some resource; they get some funding from from the state, but nothing like the scale that U.S. presidents do. Mm. But Blair is pushing a different model by almost developing a number ten outside of number ten. It's mm. mm. huge. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It's far bigger than than number ten. I mean, you know, two hundred ninety-one staff. I mean, most of them are, are, are kind of engaged in advising other governments, and, and Modley seems to have developed is that, that 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 pays for the other work, the domestic-facing work. Um, but he's got some really impressive people. Kathy, you mentioned about you know, sort of, it's not comparable to the US, but. Do you all think that the model of president sort of affects what a PM wants to do? I mean, you know, ex-presidents, they still get referred to, they're still called President Obama, President Bush. They uh, they get their library, they get a sort of, you know, a, a bigger staff. They still have, a, you know, a very much a kind of a global role. Is that something that PMs aspire to or influenced by? 
I mean, I think I think certainly in the case of Blair, he must have looked longingly across. I don't know whether he'd want a, a, a library and all of, you know, the statues and, and God knows what else that might come with it. But I can imagine that he would be interested. I mean, we have different approach to National um, Archives, which is one of the reasons why we don't have the sort of the, that approach. But actually, interestingly, thus far, I mean, presidents would more regularly be consulted in a more formal manner, as we we're just talking about. But... The big difference is that actually, by and large, they're expected not to comment on their successors. And what changed under Trump was, again, the, you know, the greater likelihood of them speaking out. I and mean, in particular, Bush the Younger, when he spoke out, because he'd been so reticent in the past and so, you know, much keeping his head down, that was more of a powerful intervention. So there, there are, you know, it's very, it's an interesting contrast because in some ways, British prime ministers have a bit more freedom, but in other respects, obviously, they don't have quite the the glamour and the reverence that that former presidents have. Mm. And I mean, yeah, David, do you think you know is, is an XPM? Do they have a sort of an international stature? I suppose in the way that an ex president does. Yes, I think they do. I mean, obviously, it depends on you know some more than others. Um, and, and, and Blair, obviously, having been prime minister for a very long time and was a big international figure, perhaps carries more more, more weight than than the others. Um, but what I'm struck by this is is the extent to which there is a particular moment in time that is happening where politics has changed quite a lot. We've got a we've got a government that is in a perhaps a, is not in any tradition of uh, of of the conservative party or it's, it's it's a different it's of a different nature and if if you like all the prime ministers fall within a sort of range of sort of essentially center ground internationalist mm-hmm. in nature which is very out of fashion and so there's an awful lot in common in terms of the positions that they take, let's say on international aid, as, as one example, but you know, relationship with the European Union, concern about Northern Ireland, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where some have been more prominent than others, but but you know there there is a common ground amongst the, the prime ministers. They they really have more in common than than, than takes them apart, um, I, I, but a really you know quite a big distinction from the current prime minister and the current government. So in a way, they represent the old form of politics it's out of fashion i think there's plenty of people who rather look back at our previous prime ministers and their reputations have become enhanced um, over time in mm. in comparison but you know coming back to the point earlier are they are they that influential probably not in in current terms because our politics has changed so much Given, given that change in politics, what about their influence with, within the party? So not just in sort of, you know, public life generally, but within the, the you know, the kind of the membership, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the true blue and true red supporters of the parties. I mean, Blair is a dirty word to, to, to many in the Labour Party, but also there are some people who, you know, hark back to the, the new Labour government as, you know, the, the biggest success of, of Labour. Similarly, as you say, David, the Conservatives are in quite a different place to, to when Cameron was in charge. Do their views, do these people's views matter to the sort of the, the rank and file of the parties? I think it is a sort of, even though I've kind of said they don't change people's minds on the on the big issues, I think it, there's still a sort of thread of continuity there, which is maybe important because I think Theresa may, may be more so than David Cameron, I'm not sure does represent like a big chunk of the conservative grassroots 
wants. Mm. Who wants to then instinctively support the party and support the Prime Minister now, but are really important to listen to when it comes to things like, I don't know, anger over the way Matt Hancock behaved. And so she sort of represents that continuity. Mm. And I think even just to uh, touch on... Gordon Brown, for instance, I think he still represents to a lot of um, Scottish Labour people in particular, like a more muscular kind of voice for um, pro-unionism and and being Scottish and British at the same time, which they still wish they could do a bit more effectively. So I think... They still do represent an important part of their parties in that, in that sense. And I think with May as well, the interesting thing is, you know, she can be a figurehead for rebellions. And in some respects, especially if you're a more junior MP, having somebody high profile like that who's, who's going to threaten to vote against the government, you know, on a three line whip uh, and actually will do, that gives you some cover if you're also thinking about doing so. And it's not necessarily from being a former prime minister. It could be a, you know, a big name former cabinet minister doing so as well. But I think it, it's stuff like that that probably also makes a difference. Uh, and of course, um, if you're looking at the Conservative Party, a lot of the former cabinet ministers are no longer there for yeah. one reason or another. <laughs> <laughs> Inexplicably. <Yeah. laughs> it's quite a different party, isn't it, to, to before? Well, well that's, it's, it's, I mean, coming, answering your question in terms of how much influence they have, I mean, it does feel like the Conservative Party is a very different party. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, I even had John Major endorsing me running as an independent against a Conservative candidate at the last general mm-hmm. election. It didn't quite do the trick, but uh, I was very grateful to him for, for, for that. Um, look, I, I think um, if, the, if the government runs into sort of serious trouble, and, and you know, polling terms, it's still doing very well. Um, but if it runs into serious trouble, then then yes, Theresa May could be a focus point, if you like, for discontent. But as I say, I think the party has changed quite mm. a lot. I'm very glad she's there, and I'm glad that she's doing what she's doing. But but at times it does sound like a, a, a voice from a from a different era. Uh, mm. But you know, all credit to her for for keeping. Yeah, up the fight. It's, it's not quite the Ted Heath incredible sulk, but um, there is always the danger that uh, those in government it just feels like a, an annoyance on the sidelines that you could do without. Yeah. I think the point is people do draw the um, comparison with Ted Heath. I think the, mm. the the issue here is is does this government turn out to be a success or not? So mm. the problem that Ted Heath has that he complained about Margaret Thatcher, but you know Margaret Thatcher did reform the economy. She did put the unions in their place in a way that he attempted to and failed. Uh, so it looked like sour grapes because she was successful. Uh, mm. Now you know it's too early. To, I have my own views, but it's 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 too early to make that assessment on this government. If it turns out to be a great success, and uh, you know Boris is re-elected with another landslide, and you know everyone said isn't isn't this marvellous? Then it, it might look like sour grapes. If, however, you know, history judges this period as as as, a, as, a, as an aberration and a terrible mistake, uh, then people will say, well, you know, good for Theresa May for. For, for making these points and, and history will judge her very kindly in a way that it hasn't with Ted Heath. One one question I'm interested in is is this idea of comebacks. So Francis, you mentioned how, you know, Tony Blair has been 
very vocal during COVID. He he has had a good COVID, as you say. And um, and there have been, you know, every now and again, rumours about, well, you know, is is someone approaching him to say, well, you know, why not run for a seat again, go back into go back into frontline politics? Do you think that's feasible? Is that can you know, it, it has happened in the past. We've had PMs who've done, you know, two or, or more stints as leader, but is it realistic in the 21st century? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it's referencing back slightly to, you know, David's point about the Conservatives changing. I mean, politics generally has changed. And, and it, I think you'd be daft to to say it, it will never happen. Um, I think he has periods where he he's clearly kind of attracted to the prospect and fantasises about it to some degree. Uh, and I think his allies then have to... Or his intimates uh, are quick to, to bring him back to the reality of actually, do you want to contest a seat? And mm. uh, you know, we talk about Amra proper of these of these four people to get down and dirty and actually kind of fight for a seat to get back into the Commons is, is you know, is is no is exposing yourself to a sort of levels of ridicule and exposure yeah. that that perhaps one T Blair would you know quail at. Um, <laughs> So it's, I, I wouldn't say it's finely balanced um, decision. I think he thinks that there may yet be a path for him. It's, I was struck by polling that shows that even Labour members are, I don't think we quite hit the 50%, but not as hostilely disposed to him as you might imagine. Mm. And name recognition is hugely powerful in politics. Um, yeah. And nobody has quite a name like T. Blair. In a way, we've sort of got to come back Prime Minister now because, mm, um, like, everyone says, oh, it'll never happen, he'll never stand for Parliament again. And if he did, how would it work and all of this? And <laughs> I know where we are now. It's like, yeah, that's a very good point. Never, never yeah. rule it out, I guess. Yes, yeah, so I know the political conference, you and I, Esther, were in, uh, I can't remember who it was in. You know, Boris Johnson will never be Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe. I've, I've rolled this guy out too many times in the past to be quite so certain about that. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it was even written as a chapter in a counterfactual history book. So, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Prime Minister Boris Johnson and other things that never happened. Um, Here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk now about sort of some of the fun things that XPMs can do. Uh, you know, we've talked about their sort of ongoing big influence and, and, and the big jobs they do. But um, if you look at sort of ex-politicians more broadly, you know, we've seen Ed Balls on Strictly. Um, President Obama has a podcast with Bruce Springsteen. Like, are there, you know, can can they relax? Can they have fun? Can they do enjoyable things? Do they become celebrities? Well, I'd just point out that Harold Wilson became a chat show host and hosted yeah. two episodes of Friday night, Saturday morning. So there, there are predecessors. And I mean, obviously, you can go back to Disraeli, you know, he was a novelist. Uh, there's plenty that have done things much beyond politics and, you know, Churchill likewise. I mean, the interesting thing is that the money question, we haven't really talked about that. But 
prime ministers, you know, they do get a pension, um, they do get some funding. Some of them have a bit of money. Um, obviously, they haven't made a huge amount uh, through the, the role of prime minister itself. But the thing that they can then cash in on are things like the speaking circuit, mm. um, you know, these sort of non-executive directorships and stuff like that. So I think it partly depends on how they're going to fund themselves and their family in the years to come. And especially if, you know, they find themselves with additional costs or that they're just used to a you know different lifestyle now than when they were first starting out in politics. So money is is part of it, but there's probably also a um, a fame aspect to it as well with with some of them. And of course, the first thing that John Major did was 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 go to the cricket, and yeah. um, and he's and he's and he's done quite a lot of that since then. So so yeah, you can immerse yourself in your in your hobbies as 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 well. Again, it's going to depend upon the nature of the. Of the prime minister, I'm sh- I'm sure ex prime minister Boris Johnson will will have a very high profile and yeah will will return full time to the entertainment industry <laughs> <laughs> if he ever left. Um, well, okay, so that's that's a, a nice segue. So what what do you think uh, as a group? What do you think Johnson will do when he leaves office? Go back to writing. I guess. I mean, actually, to me, this is the interesting thing, because obviously he's going to get paid far more as a columnist than than he was before. And I'm sure he'll still have plenty to say. But going back to what we we're just talking about in terms of Theresa May's interventions, Johnson strikes me as somebody far less likely to, you know, hold back. Um, he won't consider, you know, think of it as just, uh, should I pronounce on this as a former prime minister? Am I putting my successor in awkwardness? He'll, he'll just write about whatever he he wants to write about and that's almost going to be a more testing experience for for his successor whoever that should be whenever that should be i mean i assume he'll go back to the telegraph i mean uh, you know, the, the the um i mean dominic cummings says that he calls the telegraph his boss as it is so i assume that he he will have a very lucrative column with the with, with the telegraph and and maintain a high profile and have a good time. I, I, I think um, yeah, he'll kind of carry on as, as almost as if he'd never been prime minister. One of the things that David Cameron spoke about when, when he was speaking to Parliament about Greensill was that there is, is this little support for ex-prime ministers. He, he had the idea of a kind of, you know, some, some body being set up to, to provide guidance to ex-prime ministers. So I wonder if perhaps we could finish on that. If, if I could ask each of you, what do you think, you know, your one piece of advice for someone leaving Downing Street would be? What what, what should they do? Um, I'm going to put you all on the spot. So David, come to you first, perhaps. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think it's a slightly different answer for different, yeah, they're very different personalities. And, and what is right for Tony Blair was not necessarily going to be right for Theresa May and mm-hmm. so on. I think prime minister's should contribute towards the national debate, even if that causes um, their the government or their party some difficulties. I do think they have a sort of accumulated level of wisdom and experience, uh, at least in most cases, that um, we could all benefit from. So, so I don't think they should just disappear. I don't think that they should go silent. Uh, I, I think they should contribute towards the debate. Great. Um, Esther, what, what are your views? Yeah, uh, I guess a, a related point uh, would be, I guess, play to your strengths. Think of the thing that you were sort of best at as Prime Minister and try and do more of that and um, and sort of know when you're wanted and when you're not. And maybe, maybe pick your moments as well as 
cathed with George W. to it can be more effective to hold back and, and then and then kind of enter the stage. Francis, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I think David Cameron performed a, a, a signal service um, to future prime ministers by showing that um, taking a, a lobbying job is not the way to do it. And, um, <laughs> I th- you know, I think don't worry about the money would be top advice. Uh, and what an incredible privilege you've had of getting there. So few people do it and, you know, look back with pleasure. Very, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. And, and Kath, the last word for you. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I'm going to touch on something we've not talked about and say uh, lesson is talk to your family, think about your family. I mean, mm-hmm. in many cases with political careers, there's a huge amount of sacrifices that everyone around you uh, ends up making. There's, there's costs to them, both in terms of the lifestyle, the public profile, all the rest of it. So when you're thinking ahead, think about what's actually in their best interests and you know, what, what they might want to be doing with their career or with their life or, you know, with the public profile that they do or do not have. So think about your family. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Some good advice there. So if uh, Boris Johnson or any of his successors listen back to this, they will have some tips. So that is it for this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Kath Haddon. Thank you. David Gork. Thank you. Francis Elliott. Cheers. And Esther Weber. Thanks, Tim. Thank you very much. Our next episode will be here next week. So do subscribe if you're not already. And of course, in the meantime, check out all of our work on instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.